Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks very much indeed for inviting me. I, I come here as both a scientist and as a Christian to speak on this topic, science and faith. I'm going to leave it as a question. Are they at war? And I come also as chairman of Christians in Science, which has already been mentioned. And I thought it might be helpful. Some of you might want to look at the back of church. We produce uh, various leaflets called Thinking About, which address some of the uh, issues that Christians face when thinking about science, be it genetic engineering, be it how we understand Genesis, evolution, Big Bang. Uh, and they're written at a very simple level. I say simple. I mean, it's, it's not trivial, but it's, it's not meant, you're not meant to be a professional scientist to understand it. They're written by mainstream Christians who are also mainstream scientists. So they're sort of trying to hold the two together. But I thought I'd better just explain first, well, I am a proper scientist. I've been involved in lots of different types of research. Uh, I started looking at the regulation of fat synthesis, why you get obese and work with a drug company on that. Whilst I was doing that, I was very fortunate to discover some interesting compounds which uh, set my research career off. Um, one of the things it led me to was to discover how metformin works, which is a drug that many of you, uh, not many of you, I hope, but some of you may well be taking for type 2 diabetes. Uh, I also got very much involved in how lactic acid gets in and out of cells. Uh, lactic acid is what builds up in your muscle uh, when you exercise and you get fatigue. And th that led me into a whole load of stuff. I worked with some exercise physiologists, how you can improve your lactic acid removal when you're an athlete, but also more recently in cancer because we were able to inhibit lactic acid getting out of cancer cells and that was able to stop them multiplying and is potentially a good treatment for cancer. But perhaps uh, most of my more recent work's been done, oh, this is my favorite word, mitochondria. Mitochondria are the powerhouses of the cell. They provide a lot of energy for your cells to operate in the heart. They ensure it beats. But they also can go into reverse and kill cells. And that is what happens after you have a heart attack or during heart surgery you can get death of the tissue, and that is partly caused by the mitochondria, and we've understood how and can prevent that to some extent. So that's the sort of uh, work that I've been involved with. So I'm a proper scientist. I'm also uh, a Christian, and right from the very early stages, my understanding of how my faith as a Christian and my science go together uh, could really be summarized by these words from Augustine, St. Augustine, very well-known uh, scholar of the 4th century, he put it this way, let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master. And we put that more succinctly, all truth is God's truth. And that will be truth whether it's found through science or through scripture. Oh, I've gone too far. And that's really what Francis Bacon said, a polymath in the 16th, 17th century. God has laid before us two books or volumes to study if we will be free from error. First, the scriptures revealing the will of God, and then the creatures expressing his power. And really what he was doing is paraphrasing Psalm 19, which is my favorite psalm. It's a psalm in two halves. The first half of the psalm is the book of God's works, and the second half of the psalm is the book of God's words. So it starts, well-known verses, the verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. And as a scientist, that's what I'm looking at, the book of God's works. 
But then, of course, it goes on. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. And so I hold very firmly to the authority of Scripture, the way that God speaks to us through his written word, and, of course, through Christ incarnate, the living word, as John 1 tells us. Now, the funny thing is that an awful lot of people will tell me, well, how on earth can you be a scientist and believe in God in this, this age? I mean, surely science has shown us we don't need God any longer. It's a primitive superstition. A scientist surely can't believe in God. And many people in the media, of course, promote this view. So you have people like Brian Cox, David Attenborough, to a lesser extent Stephen Hawking, sadly no longer with us, and Richard Dawkins is perhaps par excellence the evangelist for atheism. And you may remember a few years ago he wrote the book The God Delusion. And this is a quote. Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. He believes that you can't be a serious scientist and believe in God. You can't have faith. Well, he has faith. He may not realize it, but of course, he conveniently forgets that he is a man of faith, faith in the validity of scientific laws. He couldn't work as a scientist if he didn't have faith in something, and his faith is in the validity of scientific laws. He goes to great extremes. This was the uh, lovely campaign they had in London um, on the buses and underground. There is probably no God, so let me read this, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Now you notice the probably. Even he has to admit you can't prove God doesn't exist. And the advertising stagions agency said you have to include the word probably, which I thought was fun. Now, it's strange, really, because if you go back to the origins of what we would call experimental science or modern science, which had a real resurgence in the 16th, 17th century, you had people like Galileo, Kepler, Johann Kepler, or Sir Isaac Newton, astronomers, physicists. Sir Isaac Newton, probably one of the greatest scientists and polymaths who's ever lived. He actually wrote more books of theology than he did about science. And all of these people... And many others like them were scientists because they wanted to explore God's world and they actually saw their science as part of their worship of God. And so they used verses like verse, uh, Psalm 111 verse 2, great are the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in him. They delighted in God and they understood how he worked through their scientific enterprise. Another very famous scientist, sometimes called the second Isaac Newton, is James Clark Maxwell. And he was a great 19th century physicist. And he discovered how electromagnetic radiation all comes together. Magnetism, light, electricity, how it all fits together under one theory of electromagnetism. Brilliant, brilliant guy. And he was invited when he was in his 40s to go to Cambridge to set up the Cavendish Research Laboratories, 1874, he set them up since they've had, I would have said a couple of weeks ago, 29 Nobel Prizes, but there was an extra one last week. Uh, I think more than anywhere else in the world. But what was interesting about this guy, he was, he was a very, very devout Christian, and he insisted that over the door of the laboratories had that verse from Psalm 111. Great are the works of the Lord, they are pondered by all who delight in him. Because he felt very strongly 
that scientific research was part of understanding and worshipping God. You may or may not realize that Georges Lemaitre, who uh, developed the theory of the Big Bang, was a Roman Catholic, a Belgian Roman Catholic priest. He had absolutely no problems in fitting together his science and his faith. And more recently, Francis Collins, who headed up the Human Genome Project, a fantastic worldwide project to sequence the first human genome. He is a very keen Christian. He now heads up the National Institutes of Health in America, which is the biggest grant funding agency in the world, billions of dollars into research. Keen Christian, he wrote this book, The Language of God, A Scientist Provides Evidence for Belief. He has no problems at all. Another guy called John Polkinghorne, a brilliant uh, mathematic, uh, mathematical physicist in Cambridge, by the time he got to the age of 35, he decided he's done all he could for, for science. He was ordained and became a very eminent theologian who particularly was interested in the relationship between science and faith. Again, no problems at understanding that science and faith go together. And he wrote that book, Belief in God in an Age of Science, and many, many other books. Some of them a little harder to understand than that one. So actually, it's a myth to think that scientists don't believe in God. There's a considerable number of very eminent scientists who do. Now, some years ago, uh, in 19, I think it was 1997, the retiring editor of the famous journal Nature, it's the most famous science journal in the world, I've never managed to publish in it, um, that uh, editor, as he was retiring, he was a very keen atheist, and he decided to do a survey of 3,000 scientists to discover how many of them believed in God. He was quite convinced that there would be very few and he was going to compare it with a survey 80 years previously. 80 years previously, 60% had believed in God. And he was amazed that when he did this survey in 1997, 40% of them believed in a personal God, whilst 15% were agnostic, they weren't sure. And only 45% were atheists. Well, he thought that must be wrong. They can't have been good enough scientists. So he decided he'd surveyed the very top scientists, the sort of Nobel Prize winners and members of the Academy. The result rather surprised him. 20% of the very top scientists in the world believed in God. And I know many scientists who are at the very top of their profession who are practicing Christians. So it is a myth. The problem is that many people do think that once science can provide an explanation for something, belief in God is undermined. But that represents a total misunderstanding of the relationship between science and faith. They're complementary ways of looking at the world. They're not in conflict. Science is asking the question, how? How does God work in his world? And we investigate it by experimentation. Whereas religion is asking the ultimate questions of why, of purpose and meaning. They're complementary and not contradictory. They're not in conflict. Johann Kepler, the great astronomer, put it this way, scientists are thinking God's thoughts after him. That's a lovely way of putting it. You're understanding how God works in his world. You're thinking his thoughts after him. Now, the problem is that many people still have this God of the gaps idea, and this is true amongst Christians as much as it is amongst scientists. 
The idea that once science has explained something, you don't need God. So as science explains more and more and more, God seems to get smaller and smaller and smaller. So if you think of it like that, you will feel threatened as a Christian by science. But it is totally the wrong way to look at it. Charles Colson put it this way. He was a, a Christian, a uh, professor of mathematics. There is no God of the gaps to take over at those strategic places where science fails. And the reason is that gaps of this sort have the unpreventable habit of shrinking. So that is not the way to look at the relationship between science and faith. That is a picture of Harry Potter having his first kiss. What relevance is that, you might ask? Well, let me tell you, that is osculation. That is the scientific word for kissing. It is a pressing together of two pairs of lips with a mutual exchange of saliva and bacteria. Very romantic. It's true, but it only gives half the story. Because, of course, the other half is the meaning, the purpose behind it, the emotion. Both are true. You need both to give a full explanation. That is a kettle boiling. Why is the kettle boiling? Well, water is heated to 100 degrees centigrade at which temperature? The molecules of the water obtain enough energy to leave the liquid phase and enter the gas phase in bulk to produce steam. That is why the kettle is boiling. Why is the kettle boiling? I wanted a cup of tea. Yes, both are true. They're not contradictory. So science and faith, then, are complementary. God is the ultimate cause, but he works through processes that the scientists can study. And as a Christian, I believe that God isn't fickle, but he's created an ordered universe, a universe in which there are laws, and it is those laws which Dawkins has to accept are valid. It is those laws that God has infused into the world that allow us to study it, to understand how it works, and then to use our knowledge for the benefit of humankind. We can make predictions. We can develop new technologies. We can treat diseases. And in that sense, we can become better stewards of God's creation through that scientific knowledge. Now, what I've said so far is I don't think there's any conflict between science and faith. But I want to go further and suggest to you that perhaps science can provide some evidence for God's existence and help us believe. I actually find my faith is a great encouragement in my science. And I find my science a great encouragement in my faith. Now, we cannot prove that God exists. But then there are a lot of things we can't prove. We, we take certain things to be self-evidently true. If I say I love someone, I cannot actually prove it. And they can't see evidence that couldn't. In fact, it's possible I'm, having a, I'm conning them. But you look at the evidence and you say, well, on the balance of probability, they love me. But you can't actually prove it. It's very, very difficult. You can't prove you exist. I think, therefore, I am is a cop-out. It isn't proving anything. I always like this. This is a, an old Chinese saying. It goes like this. A Chinese sage, he once said, if when I sleep I dream that I am a butterfly, how can I be sure that when I awake I am not a butterfly dreaming that I am a man? You cannot prove. Now, you don't look like butterflies to me, so I think you're all right. But you can't actually prove it. It could conceivably be true the other way around. So what are, the reasons are that, what are the reasons that you might take from science to believe that God exists? Now, the first that many people suggest is, well, where did it all come from if it weren't God? I mean, surely we now understand in science that 
the Big Bang caused the universe, but who caused the Big Bang? Surely that's God. Now, that actually, I don't like that argument very much because you can immediately see the flaw in it, but I I will come back to it in a moment, but the flaw in it um, is this. Where did God come from? Everything else, so it goes back to the Kalam cosmological argument, actually. It goes way back to Aristotle and then is developed in Islamic uh, scholasticism. But it, it says that everything that begins to exist has a cause. So the formation of the universe by the Big Bang must have had a cause, i.e. God. But where did God come from? Just as the scientists can't go back before the Big Bang, we can't go back before God. So we have to sort of, we, we all have a belief, we all have a creed. But I think there may be some truth in that. I'll come back to it in a moment. What about the design argument? Surely the world looks designed. It's an amazing universe. And the more I understand it through science, the more I look out into the cosmos with the telescope down through the microscope to the workings of the cell and even less subatomic particles. It is an amazing universe. It looks designed. Does that design not suggest that there is a designer? Do things, ran, things actually come out of chaos? Do chance events produce anything ordered normally? If I told you that a painting on the wall was produced by just colours randomly coming out of pots of paint, you wouldn't believe it. Well, you might with one or two paintings, but the majority, you wouldn't. I quite like Jackson Pollock, actually, but um, anyway. And I find it quite fascinating because some of my colleagues who aren't Christians will often say, when we're sitting down discussing a problem, we, we try to work out, how this might work and what experiments we can do. They often say to me, if I was God, how would I have done it? I don't believe in God, of course, but it looks designed. If I were God, how would I have done it? There is that sense of design. And even scientists themselves who are not Christians recognize that we are an incredibly improbable universe. So the Big Bang is extraordinarily improbable, and we call it fine-tuning. Because the conditions required for the Big Bang to produce a stable universe with just the right conditions of elements such as carbon and oxygen to be manufactured in the stars are incredibly precise, incredibly so. It's been estimated that the probability of having the required values of various fundamental physical constants and the balances between the forces of gravity and expansion and electromagnetism to produce the stable universe we're in is one in 10 to the 60, that's one, with 60 zeros after it. That is incredibly improbable. And we, we would say the National Lottery is a cinch compared with that because that is ridiculously improbable. And yet, here we are in a stable universe. Now, Fred Hoyle was an atheist, and he put it this way, a super intellect has monkeyed with physics as well as with chemistry and biology, and there are no blind forces worth speaking about in nature. It's a very, very improbable universe. Paul Davis, like the porridge in the tale of Goldilocks and the three bears, the universe seems to be just right for life in so many intriguing ways. It's not just the improbability of the Big Bang, but how did life get here? And and why is it the conditions on Earth are so precise to allow life to come into being and then to evolve? Even Dawkins had to admit this. The fact that life evolved out of nearly nothing is a fact so staggering that I'd be mad to attempt words to do it justice. And even that is not the end of the matter. Not only did evolution happen, it eventually led to beings capable of comprehending the process and even of comprehending the process by which they comprehend it. 
That sounds a bit odd, but, but we now understand more about how our brains work. We're beginning to understand how we can understand how the universe came into being. It's amazing. Einstein had to admit that. The only incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it is comprehensible. And I can't have a hairstyle like that. I'd love to, but I can't do it. Now, why is it then that so many scientists don't like to believe in God? What is it that holds a lot of scientists back? Well, one of the things, I think, is a principle we use in science called Occam's razor. It's after a Franciscan scholastic scholar, scholastic scholar, scholastic friar, um, William of Occam. He lived in the 14th century. And he put it this way, it is vain to do with more what can be done with fewer. Or, more simply put, the simplest hypothesis to fit the facts is the best. And we, we use that in science. Often, you have lots of conflicting ideas that don't seem to make sense, and someone comes up with a hypothesis that fits them all together. It's a simple hypothesis, and yet it makes sense of all these things. And sometimes it can be very simple. E equals mc squared. Einstein's fantastic equation is very simple. So they say, well, surely introducing God is an unnecessary complication. You can't look at it by science anyway. So it's not a simple hypothesis. Exclude God. Now, a guy called Keith Ward, uh, who's a professor of, or an emeritus professor now, of um, theology and philosophy in Oxford, has an interesting take on this, and I find this quite helpful. He says, okay, you're an atheist, but just imagine for a moment that this imponderable mystery we call God does exist. If he exists, then all the other imponderable mysteries, the fine-tuning of the Big Bang, how life emerged, how evolution produced the wonderful creation we have now, all those improbabilities which scientists recognize are incredibly improbable. They are no longer improbable if you have one imponderable mystery, God, which is the simpler hypothesis. It's an interesting argument. Of course, it's, it doesn't prove the existence of God. But it's one when I talk about with some of my science colleagues, they have to stop and think about that one because there is some sense in it. Now, I'm just going to finish because we ha we've had a bit from Genesis. Some of you may say, well, as a Christian, um, surely I have problems with how I understand Genesis and the scientific view of the Big Bang and evolution. And this is a, a very live question for some Christians. And I don't want to, um, to, to come down particularly hard in any one direction here tonight. But what I do want to tell you is something that I think is quite important. You see, I don't think there's any conflict because I don't think Genesis was ever meant to be taken literally as scientific truth. If we understand the type of literature it is, I don't believe it does produce any conflict. And actually, this is how Genesis has been understood from the very beginnings of Jewish thinking and Christian thinking. And I just um, want to, to tell you this, because I think a lot of people feel that we're somehow doing an injustice to Genesis if we take it figuratively. But actually, way back, it was, it was taken figuratively. I take you back to origin in the second century. And I've got to get close enough to read this. Who could be so silly as to believe that God, after the manner of a farmer, planted trees in a paradise eastward of Eden? 
What person of intelligence, I ask, will consider as a reasonable statement that the first and the second and the third day in which there are said to be both morning and evening existed without sun and moon and stars, which were created on day four, while the first day was even without heaven. And when God is said to walk in the paradise in the evening, I do not think anyone will doubt that these are figurative expressions which indicate certain mysteries through a semblance of history. This is way before the science uh, thought about it. He thought it was clearly figurative. Thomas Aquinas, actually referring back to St. Augustine, said this. Two rules are to be observed, as Augustine teaches. The first is to hold the truth of Scripture without wavering. The second is that since Holy Scripture can be explained in a multiplicity of senses, one should adhere to a particular explanation only in such measure as to be ready to abandon it if it proved with certainty to be false, lest Holy Scripture be exposed to the ridicule of unbelievers and obstacles be placed to their believing. In other words, don't put up a barrier that will stop people believing, which is not necessary because if Genesis was supposed to be taken figuratively, then it don't want to put a barrier. If I was to try and persuade my colleagues that they had to take Genesis literally, I'm afraid I would never have any chance of persuading them of the truth of the Christian faith. Francis Bacon, who I've already mentioned, put it this way. In this vanity, some of the moderns have with extreme levity indulged so far as to attempt to found a system of natural philosophy or science on the first chapter of Genesis or on the book of Job and other parts of sacred writings. And ref repression of it, the more important, because from this unholy wholesome mixture of things, human and divine, there arises not only a fantastic philo philosophy, but also an heretical religion. These people were very strong, and this was long, long before science got into the scene. Even Galileo, actually he was quoting from Cardinal Baronius, but the Bible shows us the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. And I think that's quite a good summary. So what I want to reassure you is that as a Christian who takes the authority of God serious, uh, of the Bible seriously, I am very happy to take Genesis as figurative because I believe the theology that God created, what he created was good, that we have uh, human beings as the pinnacle of God's creation, the whole stewardship and the fall. These, just, these are eternal principles that transcend time. And they were written in a form that transcends time because if dear old Moses had written about molecular biology in the Big Bang, it would have been, meant nothing until now. But by doing it in a narrative, those eternal theological principles come through today. Now, I'm sure some of you will, will, will have, uh, want to disagree, and I'm very happy at the end to uh, chat with people uh, about any concerns you may have. But I think I want to leave it there because uh, I, I could go on and on, and, and I think I've done quite enough um, to uh, set the scene. So I'll leave it there. Don't, don't go away. Oh, don't go away there. Right. Don't, don't go away. Don't go away. Um, Rob, when did you put that mask on? You've got it. Excellent. Amazing. Um, listen, we've got... Excellent. We're on. Um, just pause for a moment. Have you got a good question? Well, that's, that's a good if question. you've got a good question, I'm only going to take uh, three. 
I can see three men with hands up. All right? And I want a woman to ask a question as well. Um, Robert was first, and then I'm going to... Great. Okay. Robert. Thank you. Um, are scientists like you preparing for the day that uh, life on some other planet is discovered, and what would be the explanation, science, uh, the Christian explanation for that? Well, it's interesting because uh, you may have come across David Wilkinson, who often does thought for the day. Um, he uh, was an astrophysicist, and uh, he's going to be speaking in Bristol in May of next year for our Christians in Science on gods, aliens, and something like that. He's made a special study of this. Um, if, what I say is that the, the, the science suggests it's quite possible with the huge, the billions of stars, with billions and billions of planets, that there may be another one out there. Now, if life evolved there, or arose, um, I have no doubt that um, it was God's wish that they should, and that God would reveal himself to whoever was created there. I, I'm agnostic on that. It wouldn't under, upset my faith at all. Um, but David Wilkinson will be very interesting on this. I want to hear what he has to say. Right. Uh, I'm going here, and then I'm coming to the back. Right. Nice and close. Um, could you just briefly explain how, um, how you see the kind of transition from um, you know, primates to human you know, with the holy, with the, with the imprint of God. Yeah. It's a very good question. Now, one of the things that we're learning all the time is we we don't really understand hominid evolution. It's changing all the time. You may have heard on the news there are more and more evidence of other types of hominoids. What what we do know now is that we have uh, some uh, Neanderthal DNA in us, and we also have a des I can never get it said this, but Desnovian DNA as well. So we clearly have within us primitive hominoid DNA as we've evolved. And as a molecular biologist, uh, you, you can't deny, you know, it's, it's quite extraordinary seeing that. So as a Christian, I believe very much that God created through the evolutionary process. And human beings are the biological vessel he created to then reveal himself to us. So in, you know, the two accounts in Genesis, Genesis 1, which is the general creation account, the, the six-day creation Six days, remember, it's a seven-day rested. And then Genesis 2, and God created man out of the dust of the earth, and God breathed his spirit into him, and he became a living being. And so, in a way that I don't understand, I believe at some stage when God had, as it were, created the, 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 organ, the, 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 the being in which he was then to reveal himself, at that point, he became made in the image of God. And God then was able to have a relationship with his creative being. It's a huge topic, but that's the sort of way that I, I look at it. Um, others would, would, would see it differently. But I do see us being biologically at one with all creation. And my biochemistry demands that, really. But something very special happened in that God reveals himself to us, which I take from Genesis 2. While I'm going to the back, uh, has Christians in Science got a good, good website? With some a very good website, and lots of the things Strange I talked about there. There are some app cards, which I might put out, which you can get an app, and you can also look up all our resources online. So, uh, Wouldn't 
um, people arguing against the case of the 10 to the 60 uh, probability of Earth uh, just say that since time is infinite, then all the other probabilities would fall, or fall away in time, and then you are um, highly likely, well, it, it, it would occur, because then the yep. 10 to 60 is nothing in, in terms of infinity. You're absolutely right. Or, or we have the multiverse theory, and, and most scientists would, would say that there, are, there have been and are continuing to be billions of universes forming and collapsing, and we are in the only stable one. Where, of course, we have to be in the only stable, well, we have to be in a stable one, because otherwise we wouldn't be here to ask the questions, why are we here? So, yes, I mean, there are ways around it um, that we are in the only stable universe of billions of universes. Um, but I'm, I'm just saying, well, maybe there's a simpler explanation, that there is this imponderable mystery God who directed the whole process. But it's... It, I'm never going to prove one way or the other. And, and the multiverse one is, is quite good because it takes an enormous amount of faith with almost no evidence. Yes, well, I, I'm not a cosmologist to know the evidence one way or the other, but I don't understand string theory either. So. <laughs> Fantastic. I said three questions. Uh, you're going to be around afterwards, yep, so indeed. there's plenty of time for more questions. Um, thank you so much. Uh,